This special history episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the William M. Wood Foundation. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special history episode of the podcast is Richard Latour, the Naval History Editor-in-Chief, and Brian O'Rourke, one of the editors for Naval History and Proceedings Magazine. Hello, gentlemen. This is uh, one of the, I guess I'm going to say the fourth one we've done with our distance, social distance construct. This is the first history one we've done uh, in, in this way. So, Richard, over to you. We've been commemorating a number of the major operations of World War II on this uh, 75th anniversary year, during the 75th anniversary year. And the latest commemoration is of the Battle of Okinawa. In our April 2020 issue, Vince O'Hara wrote an outstanding article on Operation Iceberg, which was the invasion of Okinawa. And he examines a number of the interesting aspects of this gargantuan battle fought in the air, on the surface, and, of course, on land. Vince, it's great to have you on the show again. And uh, your article has a theme of sort of the twin legacies of Okinawa. Can you explain what those are? Yes, I'd be, I'd be happy to. First of all, let me say hello to Ward, hello to Brian, and hello, Richard. It's really a pleasure to be on the podcast once again. The um, subject of Okinawa was particularly interesting, I think, because it comes as the end of a process, the, pro- the escalating process of American amphibious warfare as practiced in the Pacific reaches its epiphany, reaches its, its maximum at Okinawa. It's also the maximum Japanese response to American, the American offensive. Japan had tried to engineer a decisive battle, a victory in a decisive battle repeatedly during the course of the war, seeing this as a way to salvage victory, or at least an honorable peace, out of the um, maelstrom of American power. Okinawa was the height of that process as well, and they, they had a brand new strategy designed to if not defeat the Americans, at least to impress the Americans at the great cost of invading Japanese territory. So for me, Okinawa is, is sort of like the summation of, of two different processes that come together at a point in time right at the end of the war. And it's, it's really interesting, too, because there's never been a, bit, a larger amphibious landing than Okinawa. And it was the last large battle of World War II. So the article kind of covers those two points, and it uses as its framework the uh, kamikaze attacks, which is probably the one thing about Okinawa that most people remember the most. Also, you, you mentioned the scale of it. It was uh, just enormous, both the landing, the number of sh- ships uh, the Allies had off of Okinawa. Well, yeah, you compare it to, uh, there's, the article has a little table that compares Okinawa to the, the large landing that had gone before. And you just look at something like attack transports, there were 33 of those at Normandy. Of course, you were coming from shorter distance, but there were 134, four times as many in Okinawa. So there were more battleships, or more carriers. Uh, there were more destroyers at Okinawa, and even Normandy, which we always associate with as being the, 
the largest amphibious operation. And, you know, it was it was larger in terms of men put ashore on the very first day, but in terms of total support and shipping required to bring off the event, Okinawa is, is head and shoulders above any other operation of the war. And, and what's, what's especially impressive about Okinawa is that the ships were coming from such tremendous distances. I mean, some from all the way from the U.S. West Coast, from Pearl Harbor, from um, different bases in the Pacific, but nobody was coming from less than a thousand miles away. So you compare that to something like Normandy, where they were just basically crossing a channel that was 60 miles wide. It's it's a whole different scale of events. I'm looking at that table, 269 uh, landing ship tanks and transports combined against uh, 321 at Okinawa. Uh, it's, it's astounding, as you say, to think about that, the distances involved and the logistics involved in assembling them and then getting them from the assembly point to the invasion point. Yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's the end of a process. They've been doing this repeatedly and, and ever-increasing timescale. I mean, these, these events were happening faster and faster and faster with, you know, with less interval between them. And by the time Okinawa was happening, it's, 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 it's just mind, mind-boggling to me, at least, to think that all the organization, all the planning that was required, the tens and thousands of pages of, of documents and orders and, and whatnot that had to be prepared and distributed and read and understood. And it's, just, it's just really, really, really impressive. Another interesting aspect is that the British Pacific Fleet uh, was involved, and they were kind of a, a late addition to the war in the Pacific, but they, they participated and uh, would suffer some hits from kamikazes. Yeah, the, the, there were a lot of political reasons why the British were so anxious to have their, their forces participate in the final invasion of Japan. The... Narrative usually holds that the Americans were reluctant to accept British support. I, I'm not sure that that's completely true. If you're if you're conducting an amphibious invasion across a quarter of the world, I think you're going to accept whatever support you can get. And you know, four fast carriers, a couple battleships, and fifteen destroyers and cruisers—that's that's a significant force. The British were very happy to participate. I think one thing they did learn, however, was that. When it came to practicing modern warfare, in the Pacific at least, logistics were the key to everything. And the support that the British fleet had as part of their, their, their structure, as part of their fleet train, was just inadequate to, to do the job that they really needed to do. They were dependent upon the Americans for a lot of the um, support. And mm-hmm. that's something that the uh, British learned. For the non-historians in the listening audience, uh, let's review the bidding of the island hopping campaign. So, started at Guadalcanal. Can you quickly walk us through how we got to Okinawa and what each one's strategic significance was and the sort of high points of each one? Let's start off in November of 1943, then. And we're we're taking um, we're finishing up the Solomon's campaign by taking Boygenville and and we're leaping over to the to the Gilbert Islands doing Tarawa and and starting the, the Mid-Pacific campaign. We're going to the Marshall Islands in early 1944. And then the the big landings start with the, the Marianas in June of 1944, 
which sparks the Battle of um, the Philippine Sea. That was Japan's first big effort to engineer a decisive victory, at least after Midway, and resulted in the Japanese defeat, the Great, the great Marianas Turkey Shoot, it's called, where American um, technology, radar and fighter direction, enabled the fleet to basically savage the Japanese carrier strikes. I think I think the Battle of the Philippine Sea is important to Okinawa because it kind of gave the Americans confidence in their in their fighter direction capabilities. Their variable fused anti-aircraft ammunition, for example, was much more deadly to uh, incoming aircraft than than the ammunition that had been used previously. So the Americans were pretty confident after the Battle of the Philippine Sea that they had the key to um, victory. They had the solution to the Japanese air power. The next big campaign took place in Philippines, Leyte Gulf in October of 1944. This was supposed to happen in January because the Marianas went so well and the, and the invasions before that went so well that the Americans were ahead of schedule and they felt they could accelerate the process. So in October of 1944, we have the Battle of Leyte Gulf, which was another decisive battle the Japanese engineered and another decisive battle that the Japanese lost practicing the formulas that, that had appeared to work back in 1942. I think the article brings this out a little bit. What the Japanese did at Leyte that was different, however, was they used aircraft to deliberately crash on American ships. And this was the very first time it had ever been done as a matter of, of policy. Not very many, and it was the idea of one individual um, airbase commander to do this. But the Japanese got the best results at Leyte Gulf, not from the not from the big big guns of the Yamato class battleships, not from their long lance torpedoes, not from their their dive bombing dive bombers or torpedo bombers, but it was from aircraft that were deliberately crashing on American carriers, escort carriers in in this case, and sinking them. This this was something that gave the Japanese a little bit of a ray of hope as a as a potential answer to American uh, technology, American radar, American variable fuse um, uh, shells, American fighter direction. The next landing after Leyte happened in January. This is the Battle of Luzon, another another massive uh, landing, even larger than Leyte. And after Luzon, we fast forward a couple of months, and the next step is Okinawa. So just just a matter of, of three, four months were separating these massive, massive, massive invasions. October '44 to January 45 to April 45. It's, it's, really, it's really amazing. So you didn't say Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima. Are, where do they fit in the continuum? <laughs> yeah, all, uh, Guadalcanal happens before all this even starts. I mean, Guadalcanal is a process that takes place in November of, um, excuse me, in August of 1942. And we secure the island in February of 43. And we complete the um, Solomon Conquest throughout the balance of the year 1943. So things are happening pretty slowly. And there's, there's quite a bit of uh, distance between the landing at Guadalcanal in, in, um, in August of 42 and, and Morganville in, in, um, 19, in November of 1943. So there's, there's a bit of separation between those. They're, they're starting to come fast and furious by the, um, by the latter part of 1944. And so fast and so furious, I could even forget to mention Iwo Jima which um, took place also early in 1945 and was not as, as um, a large-scale landing as, as, as the invasions of Leyte, Luzon, or, or um, Okinawa, but it was still important as a, ways, as a means of 
securing air bases closer to the Japanese Japanese mainland. So if I'm your average Marine, was I there for the duration? Did I come and go in and out of the theater? What, what, what's, and I know it, it differs by individual, but what did the average Marine do with respect to participation in any one or all of these campaigns? Different Marine divisions participated in different landings and some landings had no Marines at all. There were no Marines involved in the invasion of Leyte or, or Luzon, for example, whereas Iwo Jima was an all-Marine affair. I'm going off the top of my head here, but I think the average Marine division participated in two to three contested landings. And so you you had the possibility of doing this two or three times if you were, a, let's say, a member of the 1st Marine Division. And again, that that's something that I'd have to verify on a division-by-division division basis. But I think I think there were some there were some guys who went through three three assault landings, which in and of itself is is a pretty impressive um, experience to do just once. I can't imagine doing it twice, much less three times. Vince, what's the risk to those Marines on the beach from these kamikazes? They're attacking the ships. If you're a Marine, why why are you concerned about the kamikaze attacks and the, and the nature of the weapons? I don't think that the Marines would have been particularly affected directly by, by the kamikaze. The whole Japanese strategy was was slanted towards suicide tactics, even even on the the land, the idea was to, to have a strong position and hold it to the bitter end and, and inflict as many casualties as possible. The kamikazes themselves had a psychological effect on, on the Marines, undoubtedly, and they had a much larger effect on, on the sailors, I'm sure. Well, just to give it an example, I was, I was um, talking to my mother the other day. She was, she was born in 1931, so she was like 13 or 14 during the time of Okinawa. And she saw this article I wrote, and she she commented that that's the one thing she remembers the most from World War II was the airplanes crashing on the Navy ships and how horrible that was. So you're looking at a a 13-year-old girl from a distance of 75 years remembering that, and she can still remember the the emotional impact of of the kamikazes, even though she's far, far away from the event. I I can imagine that it was far worse for the people at the scene. And, and those memories survive over so much time. It, it gives you just a little bit of an idea, a little bit of a glimpse at how horrible, how profoundly impactful, that's a word, uh, these kamikaze attacks were to everybody that was involved with them, either directly or even from 5,000 miles away. That's one of the aspects of the Battle of Okinawa that that is really defines the battle, and I think it's, it's, it's probably its most important point. And it's one of the reasons why I, I say in the article that the Japanese, in one sense, actually succeeded in accomplishing their mission. They wanted to impress the Americans, and they did that. The Okinawa convinced the American command that, that the invasion of um, uh, southern Japan would have been very, very costly in terms of casualties. We we had no doubts after Okinawa. One of the things about suicide weapons is much more than just a matter of of jumping in an airplane and and you know seeing a ship and crashing your airplane into the ship. It wasn't it was not that easy to do. Most planes that tried to do, um, did not succeed. But with any any weapon, the more that you use that weapon, the more you practice with it, and the more you learn its tricks and its um, it's handicaps. The better, the better you get, and so we see we see kamikazes being more effective, and when used at Okinawa in 
you know, following certain strategies like coming into different altitudes or coming in small groups from every point of the compass. The other suicide weapons that the Japanese were intending to employ during Operation Olympic would have been crash boats and the uh, rocket bombs, the, the manned rocket bombs, Baka, that uh, didn't do that much at Okinawa, but I, I think you would have seen them being much more successful in Operation Olympic. I, I think the American command got the message that the Japanese were trying to deliver, and their response to it was to encourage other less uh, direct means of defeating Japan, rather than going whole whole hog for um, landing nine divisions in Japan itself. They they backed off a little bit and employed the um, mining strategy, of the firebombing, and also, of course, ultimately the dropping of the two atomic weapons on um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So and in that sense, Okinawa got everybody's attention. And in, in the Japanese might have um, might not have um, been so ready to practice that strategy if, had they known what was in store. But, it's, you know, it's impossible to know what, what, what war is going to bring to you. You just do the best you can at the time. Like Saipan, uh, the invasion of Okinawa was a joint Army-Marine operation. Can, can you discuss the fighting on land a bit? The fighting on land had two different um, phases. Uh, the first phase, they came ashore. They were, very, they were very surprised. The Marines and the Army were very surprised that the resistance was relatively light. I mentioned you know, the 40,000. 40,000 rounds of um, ammunition being expended to prepare the beaches and another 40,000 being expended when they came ashore. It was, it, was, it was easy the first couple of days. The Marines drove north. They took most of the island very rapidly. The Army turned south, and they hit the main Japanese defenses, which were covering the, the bottom quarter of the island. They were talking about how it's all limestone and, and full of caves, and they were able to dig in their artillery and have very, very strong defensive positions. You know, the first two weeks went very easy. The last two months were very, very, very difficult, and it was a very inch-by-inch process. As far as Marine Army cooperation was concerned, after what had happened at Saipan, there was um, no Marine generals in charge of Army troops. The 10th Army, was newly created formation, was commanded by um, General um, Simon Buckner, who, Army general, commanded Marine divisions within his army. Marine Army cooperation was was good. There was no desire to repeat what had happened at Saipan amongst any of the various hierarchies, and and obviously the um, army was very unhappy with it, with what had happened at Saipan. So remind us what happened at Saipan. Well, the general General Smith, the Marine general, had relieved an army army divisional commander because he felt that the army division wasn't advancing aggressively enough or quickly enough. He felt that the army was too tender. Uh, with their soldiers' lives, and that was that was the, an interpretation that a Marine general purportedly made. A little bit of a political fallout involved as a result. That did not happen in Okinawa. There was they they cooperated well and they they performed together well. So who's the arbitrator of that? Is that I was gonna, is that Nimitz or is that MacArthur or who 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 would arbitrate those uh, those conflicts? Oh, Marshall and King, I would say. And uh, Roosevelt, if he got involved, but that that goes all the way to the very top. One of the things that um, 
comes up when you talk about Guadalcanal, of course, is the the divided command at Guadalcanal and the fact that uh, Admiral Richmond Kelly Turner basically pulled his ships and with it a lot of the Marines' supplies uh, away from the island and off to a safe distance from things. Uh, as a different author in another article put it, you know, engendering generations of mistrust from Marines toward yeah. the Navy. Was there a danger of that here with the with the kamikaze attacks? Were the ships in danger at any point of being driven off? Was there ever an instinct to say, hey, we've got to withdraw, we can't afford these rates, even with the massive numbers of vessels that we have here and the size of the task force we have? You know, that's a really, really, really good question. I, I, never, I never thought about it in those terms. I, I spent a long time looking at what the reaction of, of Admiral Sprintz and, and Nimitz was to the to the um, kamikazes while it was happening, you know, looking at their, their war diaries in in April, in May, uh, the da- the daily entries where they're you know complaining about the threat, they're they're kind of um, very almost you get a sense of, of um, disbelief, impatience, almost desperation in some of the entries. But the one thing I never did get was a sense that they were going to give up and pull out. I, I never got that sense at all. It was more a matter of having to endure. How can we endure this? You know, what else can we do? Um, we have to try this. We have to try that. But I, I don't get a sense of that's it. We got we got to we got to pull up and, and, and leave. I mean, Nimitz as much as said, you know, we 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 hope that we run out. We hope that they run out of planes before we we run out of ships. So to answer that question, no, I don't I don't get that sense at all. And I I, I think that um, what happened at at Guadalcanal with the carriers was a, was a much different situation you know very regrettable situation in a lot of a lot of respects you know my dad is an ex-marine taught me to um to um you know spit when i ever said fletcher's name and and you know that's not obviously a kind of a um prejudiced point of view but it shows the power the power of that event but no i don't get that sense in okinawa at all i think i think in okinawa there was there was the resolution to complete the job and the knowledge that they had to complete it so Right, and, and the Navy and the Army were ready to move on to uh, the home islands. Yeah, I, I get the impression that the Army was more was more um, invested in, in conducting an invasion. And yes, MacArthur. Excuse me. <laughs> well, whoever. Um, yeah, MacArthur was pretty invested in that. Although, as an institution, the Army prepares for events like that. That's sort of like the epitome of their of their corporate existence, and so you can you can understand why they would they would want to um undertake the fulfillment of their function as it were but i i think that anybody looking at the projected casualty um casualties of one million american dead would have to agree that that um exploring other avenues was the right thing to do well as we were saying each one of these Amphibious campaigns had its own character, and as you've mentioned, it's the scale of Okinawa, but also, in addition to kamikazes, it was the mindset of the Japanese warfighter. The emperor had told them, die, do not do not imagine you're going to come back to the homeland. And the civilian populace, too, I remember the, in addition to watching the kamikaze footage, uh, as a young boy, seeing the footage of the civilians jumping off the cliffs because they were so afraid of being captured by the Americans because they had been told by the emperor that the Americans were devils. 
So that that sort of thing, as we're saying, certainly set the tone for whether we were going to invade the homeland or not. That really factored into the calculus going forward. It did. We were we were fighting a different type of war against a different type of enemy, and it took us a while to really appreciate the nature of that war and the, and the nature of the enemy. And this is not to say that the Japanese were at heart any different than we are. I, I remember reading letters written by by young kamikaze pilots uh, before they set out on their missions, some collection of, of, of letters. And the strong impression I got after reading those was that, you know, these are basically young men who did not want to die, who felt that they had no other choice, that their, their social and, and, and peer group obligations put them in a position where they, they really had no choice. And a lot of them were angry about it, too, to be honest with you. It kind of, kind of opened my eyes a little bit. But if I were ever in a situation where I was forced to sacrifice my young life on, on, under those circumstances, probably be, be angry as well. So what was the total box score uh, of Okinawa in terms of KIAs, and how long did it take to, uh, to capture the island and overwhelm the enemy? started April 1st, and the um, island was declared secure on June 21st, so that's 10 and a half weeks, 11 weeks, quite quite a long time, uh, two months, no, almost almost three months. As far as deaths were concerned, it was the bloodiest event for the Navy. They had 4,800 um, sailors wounded and 4,900 were, were killed. They had more killed than wounded, which is very unusual. It reflects the nature of the weapons that were being deployed against them. Uh, the 10th Army suffered... 7,600 killed and more than 62,000 wounded. Almost half of those were non-battle related. Um, when the Japanese lost, who, who really knows? The, the current number is about 110,000 uh, military deaths and anywhere between 40 to 150,000 non-military deaths. So we're looking at maybe a quarter million Japanese. A lot, a lot of people died. And for the Americans, you know, maybe next to the Japanese numbers, 70. Say let's say five thousand, twelve thousand American deaths in ten, eleven weeks. That's 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 a lot of deaths. So yeah, it was a very bloody campaign, very bloody battle. More bloody for the Japanese, of course. But the whole thing about it is, it was just a would have been a pale shadow, I think, of an invasion of, of Japan. I think I think um, that would have been a bloodletting on a whole different scale. The other numbers in the are relevant here that are in the table that accompany your article. Over the course of the whole battle, the, the U.S. Navy lost 21 ships sunk, 122 ships damaged, uh, and that was undertaken by 1,465 kamikaze attacks. So it took yeah. roughly a 10 to 1 ratio to achieve a hit, a hit on a ship. Just a remarkable number. You know, it's easy to lose sight in 110,000 dead troops, what that amounted to, but that's 1,465 pilots given training and put in an airplane sometimes, you know, three or four times and then told, here's your one shot and off you go. When you talk about the anger people might feel, you know, it's, it, that number is a lot more graspable. And that number is actually not, not that's just the number that was um, expended in the 10 mass suicide attacks. And so that's not the total, the total sum of, of damage or death caused by the kamikaze raids themselves. Those are just the um, 
the 10 special attacks. And, and the reason why I, I highlight those 10 attacks as opposed to the total scale is it's possible to get get better numbers and do ratios like the planes mm-hmm. needed to um, hit or sink a ship, which I find to be kind of kind of interesting. I, I find it very fascinating if you're going to be doing this. Why are some attacks so successful, other ones aren't? And, and you know, just little things like that. It's kind of, it's kind of a, a way of just looking at the data. But I think overall, uh, during the entire campaign, including um, other types of weapons like shore batteries and mines, the Americans lost, I think it was 34 ships altogether. Another thing not to forget in these casualty figures were the enormous number of civilians that died in the fighting. Exactly. Like Again, that's an unknown number, but they, they estimate between 40,000 to 150,000 civilians on, on an island that's, what, 60 miles long? It's a very, very, very large number, and we, there's a certain sensitivity today in, in when you read about collateral damage and trying to prevent civilian casualties. But of course, in something like Okinawa, those concepts would have been completely foreign. And anybody who's anywhere close to what, where the fighting is happening is at total risk. A lot of times, the civilians were not even able to avoid the battlefields. Yeah, it, was, it would have, it would have been um, horrendous to be a civilian on Okinawa. So we declare. The island captured late June. In August, drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, have VJ Day. What happens in between? The um, fast carriers start visiting the Japanese coastal waters. Uh, You have American battleships bombarding steel mills. This this was taking place in July. You have uh, carrier aircraft. Uh, buzzing Japanese airfields and and doing raids, you have the the net drawing tighter, as it were. The the um, plan for Operation Olympic was for that to go forward in November of 1945. So the Americans were very interested in in reducing Japanese air strength, trying to cut down the number of potential kamikazes, of which the Japanese were expecting to be able to deploy more than 6,000 kamikaze aircraft for the Operation Olympic. So you have the Americans undertaking preparation from that. We sank the remnants of the Japanese Navy using carrier aircraft. We pretty much eradicated the Japanese merchant marine. We were dropping magnetic mines from B-29s and from submarines and from from uh, other delivery systems all around the Japanese islands, which slowly but surely were choking off all all trade. The American submarines were in the inland sea. So it was it was obviously the end was coming for the Japanese. But looking at it from their perspective, they still are occupying most of China. Most of their conquests in China are still are still occupied. The army is still intact and the Japanese regarded the army as their as their biggest strength. So the, the Japanese government and their their high command felt that they still had some some cards in their deck. They felt that that they still had some military options, even though even though the American uh, blockade was starting to really squeeze the um, squeeze the uh, nation economically, and they, they they still weren't ready to call it quits. Uh, I think the twin the twin occurrences of the Russian declaration of war and the dropping of the atomic bombs provided the the out that some of the um, Japanese moderates needed to to bring about a, a peace and, and you also have to remember that the Americans gave up a little bit on their on their on their um, demands as well the fact that even though we were demanding unconditional 
surrender, we still let the Japanese retain their head of state. That was a compromise we made to to bring about a peace. I think nobody in their right mind really wanted the war to continue at that point, although it very easily could have. Let me let me make one statement, just a, a general statement about the nature of of the Navy's activities and and let's call it you know sea power with capital S and a capital P in general as it was practiced in World War II. I think Okinawa in some respects is is one of the highest expressions of sea power that anybody could ever hope to see. I I I think that the ultimate expression of sea power was being able to take out a loaded transport and dropping off its its load of soldiers onto a hostile shore and maintaining them maintaining them there. The ability to do that across an ocean span and such large numbers uh, against such tremendously bitter opposition stands as an expression of sea power that is unparalleled in the history of the world. I think Okinawa uh, deserves credit for being, like I said, the, ulti- the ultimate act- activity by the U.S. Navy in World War II and by, by the U.S. Army as well. I, I think it's just, I think it's something which rewards study and, 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 and stands as an example of, of almost the unachievable being achieved. Our guest has been historian Vincent O'Hara, who was our, we'll remind the frequent listeners that he was our guest last summer when we were talking about whether or not D-Day could have happened a year earlier than it did. And also note that that's the most listened to episode of the podcast in the history of the podcast. So uh, you can amble about the planet with great pride with that element, Vince. (laughs) We've been talking about his article in the March-April issue of Naval History Magazine about Okinawa. That's the Okinawa theme theme issue. So thanks a lot for stopping by the Proceedings Podcast today, Vince. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to um, be able to talk to you guys, to be able to publish in Naval History. It's, it's, Naval History is a great forum. It's a great magazine. And I'm really happy that, that I have the opportunity to work with Richard and, and um, being part of such a, such a great production. So thank you again. And, and I'm pleased that um, D-Day was the most uh, listened to episode, but I have to say that a lot of that has to do with the subject, a very fascinating subject indeed. So thank you, gentlemen. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.